upwards of 13% of the United States population, adult population, uh, so this doesn't include the children, but upwards of 13% of the American adult population is on some form of antidepressant medication. Did you know that? 13%, that's rather high. When you break it down to the genders, women, about 18, 18% of women in the United States are on some form of antidepressants. We have, and, and forgive me, this, some of this is my opinion and I'm going to get into the article. We have for decades now been told that the need to take antidepressants, SSRIs, uh, is, so, is because clinical depression is related to low serotonin in the body. Have we heard of that messaging? A report came out this week that says this, scientists have called into question the widespread use of antidepressants after a major review found, quote, no clear evidence that low serotonin levels are responsible for depression. Many people take antidepressants because they've been led to believe their depression has a biochemical cause, but this new research suggests this belief is not grounded in evidence. Uh, says the study's lead author, uh, Joanna Moncrief, a professor of psychiatry at the University College London and consultant psychiatrist at Northeast London uh, NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, she goes on to say, it is always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. The new review of existing studies found that depression is not likely to be caused by a chemical imbalance and that people should be made aware of other options for treating it. Uh, obviously, we want to make sure that I, I am not a medical professional. I am not an MD. I am not a psychiatrist. If this counts for you, this is not advice to cold turkey. Stop anything. Talk to your doctor. I find this to be a rather fascinating development in the medical world because they go on to say, I want to make sure I find it. Other studies, other studies looked at the effects of stressful life events and found that the more stressful life events a person had experienced, the more likely they were to be depressed showing the importance of external events, not necessarily your internal chemical imbalances. Now, why am I talking about this as a pastor? If we are to take seriously this new study, um, and again, I am, I am not an MD. If we are to take seriously this, this study, though, what it tells me as a theologian, what it tells me as someone who looks to the Word of God for guidance in my life, uh, we can find instruction for how to find joy in the middle of turmoil. Uh, this is not an, an admonition to, quote, pray it away. But if it is more likely that external causes are a result of depression instead of a chemical imbalance as a part of clinical depression, then I would encourage us as people of faith, uh, as people who find our joy not in the changing winds of what goes on in society, but rather in the fixed point of Jesus Christ, then perhaps it gives us options now. Because what this tells me is that if so many people are looking for a pill to solve their problem, 
when the studies seem to say that it's not the solving of those chemical levels that will fix the problem, it is coping with external factors, it seems that as a society we would be well off to consider options in how to better cope with tough times. I think as a people, as I look around, as I have conversations with men and women and and people across the demographics, uh, what seems to come through is that our society is really good at helping people escape. Uh, You take a pill to take care of a symptom, not always the underlying cause. Uh, Watch more screen time to help you escape. That's why people go to the movies, uh, escapism. Uh, Look through social media so you can find out how happy other people are on Instagram. And by looking at their happiness, it can help you feel a little better or a little worse because you wish you were that happy. Uh, That actually seems to be the the prevailing trend. Um, This is a fascinating study to me um, because it, it helps... It helps me consider that rather than looking for a now questionable route for for coping mechanisms, as a man of faith, as a people of faith, we can look for other ways of coping, ones that perhaps don't have uh, such negative side effects. Uh, Some of those side effects are rather lengthy and rather severe. Uh, I am I am. Just simply sharing this, uh, take it for what you will. I find it interesting. I find it fascinating. Um, and it, it leads me to think that uh, maybe we can find a longer lasting peace in the Prince of Peace. Uh, this is not, again, just a throwaway for people who, who struggle with it. Um, I can empathize to, to a point. Um, this is not just a pray it away kind of thing, but it is a, at least adding something to the conversation, if you will. Let us now look at our message for today. To put us back on track, though, let us offer up one more word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always there, that you look on us in favor, that you incline your ear in our direction. So we pray that you would do that right now for us. This we pray in your name. Amen. And if you'll excuse me for a moment. And with the rain at my house the other night, apparently one found a new home. Do we have my picture up? We try to do this last minute. Okay. <clears throat> Can y'all see that? Have we seen this picture before? How many of us have seen this one already? Oh, most all of us. Very good. So for those who don't know, this was the very first image that was transmitted and received by the new James Webb Telescope. The James Webb Telescope puts the Hubble to shame, if you will. The Hubble is fantastic. This is phenomenal. I am really intrigued with what's coming through on this telescope because the ability, how far out from Earth it is, the size of it, the detail of the images that it is collecting from the universe, or at least what we see as the universe, is astounding. Clear 
and crystal, high definition, good resolution, all things considered. And we are now getting a glimpse into corners of the universe that previously hadn't even been seen before. What we see here, I am not an astrophysicist, so I have to take other people's at their words. What we see here are stars and galaxies and nebula tens of billions of light years away or hundreds of billions of light years away. The most recent picture, I don't have it, but you can find it. Uh, I think it came in yesterday or the day before. It's a fuzzy little red globe-looking thing that they say is the oldest known galaxy that they have found so far. Um, I had to take a lot of people at their word and how they calculate light speed in years and so on. But this new red galaxy image is, is supposed to be about 400 billion light years away. So to the astrophysicists that are studying these things, they say 400 billion light years is about when we think the Big Bang happened. Right, that's, I'm using their terminology for this. This is an interesting photo because let's put this into perspective. Okay, if you laid on your lawn on a dark summer night and you looked up at the heavens, you would only be seeing a portion of our one galaxy, the Milky Way, right? The Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. These are multiple galaxies ranging anywhere from 50,000 light years across to about a million light years across. And there's multiple of them inside of one image. Now, in case you're asking about the one that looks kind of like the Star of David, that the, the rays that are shooting out is because this is a composite photo, because it, they, the telescope uses multiple lenses to bring together its images. So those rays are just from where the lenses are touching each other on the edges. So it's just, it's just a part of the lighting. To put this into perspective, that one image would be if you went to a beach and you picked up a grain of sand and you held it out at arm's length and you looked at that grain of sand, that's the grain of sand compared to the rest of the known universe. And there are lots of galaxies and nebula and, and constellations, etc., in this one grain of sand held out at arm's length compared to the rest of the universe. That is vast, my friends. That is huge, my friends. Who are we? In that is what comes to my mind. Because if this is that picture, well, you would have to be a speck on that speck to maybe be one of the galaxies and then inside of that galaxy, you would be another speck to get down to a planet like ours. So you're a speck on a speck on a speck of an image like this. And then you break that down even into smaller to like, who, who am I? I've wrestled with that question as I look at that, and I've, I've wondered what other people think about this. You can find well-known international astrophysicists that will say, this is interesting because we can see back into history, close to the Big Bang, and this is what it looked like, and this is what was going on, because you have to factor in the differencing of time for how long it takes light to just get here. 
You know, so the telescope is actually collecting light from that many years ago. When I look at it, oh, and, and, and to most international astrophysicists are also very devout atheists. And so some of them have said things like, when I see these images, I have to remind myself that this is nothing more than a reflection or a transmission of a cluster of ones and zeros uh, that represent an image taken out in space, and it has no deeper meaning. None. This is just cool, but eh, in the big scheme of things. Nothing bigger, nothing deeper, nothing broader. To the Christian, to the Bible believer, we might see something like that, and we recall what David writes in Psalm 19. To someone who has a belief that we are not some cosmic accident, but that there is a God in heaven who kick-started the universe whenever he wanted to, and he spoke it, and then at some point he thought he'd come to our little speck of a speck of a speck, take what was chaos, put it into order, speak into existence light and earth and grass and animals, and then not speaking mankind into existence, but kneeling in the dirt and with God's own hand shaping the first human body, breathing in the breath of life, and then I like to imagine a handful of hours later, the second human being comes around. Uh, that brings to mind, when we see these images, David in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And all of that speaks to us of the glory of God, a God who saw fit to look on that speck of a speck of a speck and not only shape you, but then when, when our earliest parents thought to reject him, God saw fit to send his only son so that you might have eternal life. Who are you? And maybe a more important question is who is God? Who is God? What is our thoughts about what are our thoughts about God? Who is he to us and what is our relationship to him? This image, I hope it's still up there. I'm not pointing at a blank screen. That image brought those thoughts to my mind. And it made me wonder how am I to respond when I ponder those questions? Because what your beliefs are about God should shape how you respond to him. What you believe about God, what you believe about your relationship to him, should affect how you interact and behave toward him. Which is why today we are looking at reverence and fire. Which is why today 
our verse in Hebrews chapter 12 at the very end, and I hope you have your fingers still there or it's open on your app. That's why this question about worship that is acceptable with reverence and awe should be considered. Because when we wrestle with those big, eternal, weighty questions, who is God and who am I to Him? And then what is my response to Him? What is our conclusion? This verse takes us through many things. We're going to talk about three of them today. These two verses are so jam-packed, you could do a month's worth of sermons on them and their weight of meaning. We're going to look at three main points. One, let's put this into context because it comes to our first point. When you consider your relationship with God, you have to ask, why, is he, why and what is he doing for you? Well, the Bible tells us that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to live to die so that you might have eternal life. Well, that's not just so you can feel good about something. That's not just so it can be hopes and dreams for some far out distance millennia in the future kind of reality. It's not purely so we can think about prophetic eschatology, the end of times study. It's not just so we go through the mundane rigmarole of today, thinking that there won't be a blessing until the tomorrow's tomorrow. Because what we read in our first point is, therefore, in verse 28 of Hebrews 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Leading up to this verse, we we read about the Israelites' uh, experience, if you will, at the mountain of Sinai. We read about how it was shaken when God's presence was there. We read about how uh, the, the Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We read about in the context of what all of Hebrews is talking about is that there is something better than that God is giving to you. The best that this world has to offer, the best of the sacrifices that were a part of the Old Testament, uh, religious ceremonies, Jesus is the better blood. The best that our kingdoms can offer with the grandeur, the, the, the spreading out of David's kingdom and the splendidness of Solomon's riches and the glory of the temple. Well, we know that all of that was raised to the ground. God is saying that there is something better than that. When we think about Daniel chapter 2 and we see the statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and you've got the various metals building and building, what's the last one? The rock carved without human hands. It grows into a mountain that will last forever. When we think about the things of this earth, when we look at all around us, when we consider some of it's rather impressive. Have you ever seen a really impressive building or a sculpture? You've, you've got these, I mean, just beautiful buildings. I, I think of the Taj Mahal as a beautiful building. I think Notre Dame is a beautiful building. I think of some of these these edifices that humans have erected, uh, either in memory of or in glory to or just because, 
And then I remember that all it takes is the right kind of storm or the right kind of earthquake or the right kind of rowdy crowd, and it can all come crashing down. I think of the greatest nations that have ever stood throughout history. We think of Egypt. We think of the Mayan Empire here in the Americas. We think of Greece and how far Alexander took it in his brief lifetime. We think of the might and the strength and the power of Rome and even how Rome and Grecian philosophy and ideology impacts us today. We think about the rising of the United States right on time when God said the United States would come onto the scene and it would be this mighty power and it would influence other nations and it would in a good way, spread civil and religious liberty around the globe. That's a good thing. But if we keep reading into the, into the Word of God, we find that the kingdoms of this earth, the monuments that we erect for ourselves, the, the manner of government that is set up, some fantastic, others wickedly evil, doesn't matter. It all comes crumbling down. It all comes crushing down. When the things of this earth are looked at as if they were stable. God is saying, no, I'm going to shake them. When I come, I shake them. The context leading up here keeps our mind on Mount Sinai, and I want to try and keep our mind on Mount Sinai. When the nation of Israel was laid out at the foot of that great mountain, uh, delivered from slavery, the promise of a land that they're going to inherit, not of their own, but God's going to give it to them. And God says, prepare yourself, I'm going to come down and meet you. It was a shaking. That ground rumbled. That ground trembled. There was thunders and lightning. It shook when God's presence came. And when God comes again, when Christ comes again to take us as his own, there's going to be a shaking of the nation's perceived might. And by that, I mean the earth. Whatever we set up, when Christ comes, when God comes, it shakes and it crumbles. But who is God to you? How do you answer that? Well, God is your creator. God knew you before you were formed, and he has a plan for you. That plan is to get you home to heaven. Along the way, we learn valuable lessons, but ultimately that plan is to get you home to heaven. God saw fit on this speck of a speck of a speck to love you enough that all of heaven was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ who lived, ministered, died that sinless life just so you can be redeemed by his blood. How do you quantify that? I can't. And it doesn't end there because God has promised that this kingdom he's going to establish, it's for you. You get to be a part of it. You get to go through the record books. You get to judge angels. You get to see how God has, has moved and, and bent his energies just to save humanity. And what else can you do but throw your crowns at Jesus' feet and just say, praise the Lamb? But you don't have to wait until those final scenes to start receiving the kingdom now. 
That's what this verse is saying. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That structure is in a present participle. That means now and ongoing. Right now, you have the opportunity of accepting by faith that kingdom of God. You have right now that opportunity at receiving by faith the joy that comes with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have right now the opportunity of receiving by faith a peace that surpasses understanding. And right now, you have by faith the opportunity of an unshakable relationship with the saving God that will sustain you through the great shaking when God comes back. Right now, don't think that these promises are only for then. Right now, this can be a part of your life. Do you want it? Do you want what God is freely offering to you? Do you acknowledge that you can't have it in and of yourselves? It is only that free gift of God. Do you recognize that it is because God is your creator, your redeemer, your sustainer, your savior, that you can even have this opportunity? Well, then who are you and what do you do back? When you recognize that God is so sovereign that this is his footstool, when you recognize that nothing happens unless God either does it or deems it <laughs> allowed, when you recognize that, when you believe that, when you accept that, that shapes what you think of God, and then you go, He is so far above me, how can I bring him so low to me? And that's why our next point is to, the verse goes on, therefore, then, and thus, then, because of the receiving the kingdom, because of God's good gift to us that cannot be shaken, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You see, God is up there, and we are down here, and his sovereignty is so high, and his holiness so pure that he gets to tell you how to worship him. The acceptable worship is according to his instruction, his dictates, his manner of, of request, if you will. Uh, I, I was, it's been a long time since I've seen this. As a child, I used to, I, I used to see these shirts there for a while and my youth, I guess it was kind of the beginning, maybe the beginning middle of this, we want to get away from a hard legalism and a stiff rigidity when it comes to our religion. I'm okay with that. We don't need legalism. You can't earn your way to heaven. And I also think that we should be joyful as Christians. We have a hope. We have a love. We have a peace. We should not look sad and beaten down because we have saving grace, right? Can we take it too far? I think we took it too far when I walked into a store one time in the mall in Jonesboro, Arkansas, and I saw hanging from the, the shelves, Jesus is my homeboy. Oh, I, I said, I get, I get that Jesus is our brother. The Bible says that. I get that the Bible talks in terms of a friendly relationship with us. 
He is kind and gracious. He is long-suffering towards us. He carries us in those moments when we need to be carried. But in the same way that I tell my 14-year-old boy, I am not your classmate from school. Don't talk to me like I am. That's not a made-up story. (laughs) He's not here, so he can't defend himself. I have to tell my son there is a difference between me and your peers at school. I do play with you. We go to an amusement park, or we hike through the woods, and we play board games together, and we eat together, and we, we fellowship, and we are a family, but I am not your schoolmate. You'll talk to me with a little bit different kind of tone. You'll use a different language. I, you will use proper language. Don't, don't muddle slang in your conversations with me because I am not that. I am your father. We have this relationship, but there is a distinction between me and them. We have a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ, but he is distinctly different than the person sitting next to you. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that that he might be God and man, totally and complete. But Jesus Christ is still pure, perfect, sinless, holy, in a way that you and I are not. And so to relegate Jesus Christ down to my homeboy is to bring him into an area that I, I would suggest we don't dare do. Because when we know who God is and we know where he fits in the universe and we realize the weight that it cost heaven to pay for our sins, then then we desire that our worship be with reverence and awe and acceptable. There's no other way of doing it. To do otherwise is to assume something that is not ours to assume. To do otherwise is to forget our place in the universe or our place in the plan of redemption. Just so you know, a little, a little taste for the future. Uh, we are not today going to look at the minutia of the what's and the how's when it comes to reverence today. That's next week. I'm here next week preaching. We're going to look at that a little bit more in depth. But today we're setting the foundation for it. Because you need to understand first before you wonder about the how's is that who you are, who he is, and that you should. You should be worshiping in a way that is reverential, fearful, in awe of God for who he is compared to your relationship. When you come before him, when you pray and you lay out your your heart before him, in your own devotions, you're going to speak more plainly. Be open with him. Be raw with him. There's nothing irreverent about that. You know, tell him your frustrations. You can read when the prophets express their frustrations to God in a rather raw and real way. But then in reverence, understand that how he responds back to you is understood for what it is. Your God is speaking back to you. That doesn't mean that it's open for debate. That means that it is God speaking back to you. That means that when we come to worship God, when we come to give him praise, when we come to 
When we come to sing glory to he who is holy, we don't take on the same attitude as if we were going to a rock concert in a large arena. There is a difference. When we come before the God of heaven and holiness, and we have in a real sense invited his presence, we don't just mean it with empty words. We mean it because we mean it. It's real. God has said, I will be with you when you gather together to worship. And that's an attitude that we need to remember. We don't just take it for granted. We don't just cheapen it. We hold it in a high regard because we should hold God in a high regard. So now let's look at our third point, our last verse. And this is where we're going to play with a little bit of the original wording in the Greek. For our God is a consuming fire. There's the reason for why we come before him in awe and reverence and an acceptable worship according to his dictates. Our God is a consuming fire. So we want to look at this in two main contexts. One, if we look before it, it is in the context of God is a consuming fire with regards to judgment. If we see yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, we are in judgment. Right now, presently, God is judging the record books to see who is faithful to him and who is not faithful to him. God is a consuming fire when it comes to an end-time event. God is a consuming fire in that his holiness cannot have sinfulness enter its presence without the sin being consumed. When God descended upon the mountain at Sinai, he had to instruct them, put bounds around the mountain so that no one comes near it. If they came near it, these were a sinful people who hadn't made themselves right with God. They were just going to be consumed. God's presence weighed so heavily on that mountain that even the priests were told, don't step foot beyond this point. Pure holiness consumes sin when it enters the holiness's presence. Do you still have sin attached to your life or have you cast it off? And I don't want to make it sound super complicated because God has said, if you repent and you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you of your sins. Elsewhere, you find that he takes those sins and he casts them as far away into the deepest trench that you can possibly imagine. In there, there might be a black hole. I don't know. There might be a black hole. God cleanses you so thoroughly that the last speck of sin gets cast into the farthest black hole. And you need that through the merits and righteousness of Jesus Christ or you cannot enter into the presence of this consuming fire. I mean, you can't. That's, that's just the reality of it. So I want to encourage you that if there is something still lingering in your life, go to him for the forgiveness. Ask for the cleansing. And then by faith, trust that he has and live your life as the new creature, that new creation. That's the other part of it. You don't, 
You don't get to, from that point forward, listen to the tempter's doubting words and says, God hasn't forgiven you yet. No, you claim the promise. Yes, he has. You be quiet. Yes, he has. Now my worship is acceptable. Now I can come to him. Because he is faithful. He is just. I can worship him in awe and in reverence. When we look at, when we look at Sinai, God meant it when he said, don't come near the mountain. And then the people responded, the people responded with fear because they knew who they were compared to God. Sometimes we want to shy away from fear and only talk about fear as meaning awe and reverence. Sometimes fear is just fear. Sometimes fear is understanding you in relationship to him. Sometimes fear is, I am harboring a sin because it's my own little pet that I like to pull out at times to make me feel good. That's my sin, and I really don't want my sin to depart from me. I'm going to hang on to it. Well, when God says, if you come near me with that pet sin still attached to you, I'm a consuming fire. The Bible tells us there will be people who will shake in those moments when they realize it. When that sin becomes more important to them than their faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you don't have a pet sin today. I hope you don't. The second meaning to it, so one is just simply that. God is a consuming, I lost my place. God is a consuming fire. Have you gone to him for a cleansing. And then two, it's not just in the sense of judgment. Not just. There is this idea of forgiveness and don't presume. What do I mean by that? If we remember that this is a, a relationship to the Israelites, you can keep your finger here in Hebrews. You can turn to... Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we read that in Moses' final sermon to the Israelites before they pass over into the promised land, he's taking them through their history. He's reminding them of things and he's giving them blessings and cursings and assurances and so on and etc. It's a great read. It's a great book. Learn a lot from it. Deuteronomy chapter 9 Beginning with verse 1, the heart of it is verses 3 and 4. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, who you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Sounds a little bit like God is promising them an unshakable kingdom from something that is about to be shaken, doesn't it? I'm about to give you something that you can't have in and of yourselves, but God is giving it to you. Can we see some parallel? He goes on. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you, that's God, as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. God is the consuming fire to the enemies of God's people. In other words, it's in your benefit 
that God be a consuming fire. God's consuming fire is what goes before and takes care of these nations, this sin, the enemy of souls, so then you are ultimately free from it. But we have a little warning. When God does these things for you, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, quote, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nation that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. God is a consuming fire to others. But then don't presume that it's because you are good. God is a consuming fire to sin and Satan and hurt and death and destructions and nations that rise against the people of God. And then he gives you that kingdom that cannot be shaken. And remember that it's not because of your righteousness. Again, it's because of his. That's why we worship with reverence and awe. Everything cycles back around to how mighty and sovereign and good and great and glorious and holy God is. And he's doing all of this for you. So in return, we praise and we give thanks and we serve and we worship and we, and we respond to him with, with reverence, with awe, with a humility, with a desire with a desire to not act presumptuously or to lower him down to our sinful standards. But rather, we long to be elevated up to his standards. We long to be elevated up to the heavenly courts. We long for our thoughts to be directed towards the light and out of the darkness. And when we enter into his presence, when we come here to worship, when you take time in your bedroom or your study or wherever you happen to have your morning devotional, Enter into his presence with reverence and awe. Open up the word of God, whether it be privately, publicly, individually, or corporately, and take on that attitude of reverence and awe. He is so good. What can we do besides to respond with reverence and awe? I am so glad that we live in an era where we don't have to traverse traverse nations to get to a singular temple in order to worship God. God has promised through the presence of his Holy Spirit, wherever you are, you can enter into worship with him. I am so thankful for that. We are not tied down, we are set free. I am so thankful for that. And so I want to encourage you today as we, as we end, remember that one, you can today by faith be receiving a kingdom that is not to be shaken, God's kingdom, a kingdom of grace and peace and love and joy. That can be yours today. Do you want it? Accept it by faith. Ask for it. Plead for it. When you know who God is, do you then want to respond to him with reverent, awe-filled, humble worship? Do you want to remember who he is in relationship to you?
Do you want to do that? I encourage you to do that. Whether it's here or at home, worship Him with reverence and awe. And then two, remember that we don't always like to think about it, but God is a consuming fire. Ask for the forgiveness. Accept that it is real in your life. And then remember that God's consuming fire is intended for your enemies. God's going to go before you. He's going to prepare the way. He will be warmth in your light as he is a destroying fire to the enemy of souls. Look forward to that and respond with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for We thank you for the encouragement and the exhortation that we can find in it. Lord, I pray that as we have come before you today, I pray that we have not been so distracted that our thoughts have become irreverent. I pray that as we have come before you today, that we have had a desire to acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. I pray that that attitude not end with this closing prayer, but this evening, And tomorrow and the next day, as we enter into your presence with praise and worship, as we read from your word, I pray that it would be with reverence. I pray that we would worship you in acceptable ways. Lord, please inspire us, go with us, go before us. Uh, Let us know of your love and then help us show it to others. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.